Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. We've got a fantastic guest today, Ivan Williams. He's an executive producer and executive vice president for a Hollywood story development firm called Scenario Entertainment. However, Ivan's career has spanned several industries. He was a chemical engineer who designed advanced computer controls and artificial intelligence applications for oil refineries. I was also a senior business leader at major energy and engineering companies like Arco, British Petroleum, and Worley Parsons for over 35 years. In addition, Ivan is an entrepreneur and helped create an innovative film production studio and media tech startup company that is revolutionizing the television industry. This is on top of all producing multiple entertainment projects from films to Broadway. Ivan, my good friend, thank you for being on the show. And I, how do you... Can't with how busy you are. <laughs> Neil, sleep is overrated. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> it sounds that way. So, Ivan, as a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world? Well, you know, the story I want to bring to the world is, you know, in the times we're in right now, uh, it's about bringing access to many diverse voices into the Hollywood story scene and also on the stage, since I'm a Broadway musical producer. So, it's a really opening the door for diverse um, voices that just haven't had that opportunity. So that's where we're at. I, I, I mean, you've got the, quite the career, right? You're, you're a chemical engineer. You, you became a business leader. You know, you're, you're really a lot, doing a lot in media entertainment. I know you're actually helping out the University of California Irvine with their new merger media and design program. How did you wind up on this career trajectory? <laughs> How do, um, how do you go from engineer to media? Well, it's one, one key question that comes up all the time. And I tell them, all it takes is after 35 years and someone says, hey, maybe you can get a nice big severance check and leave your career. <laughs> so I got to retire early from the world of oil and gas. And I turned to my wife who asked me, what the heck am I going to do at age 52 since I didn't garden and didn't play golf? She said, I told her we're going to get in the filmmaking business. And she said, what do you know about filmmaking? I said, well, I tell you, I enjoy storytelling and enjoy films, but I do know how to run and run companies. So that's how we came into this nine years ago. And we have never turned back and looked back. Nice. Well, you picked the perfect business because as William Goldman, one of the most famous screenwriters ever said, uh, you know, no one knows anything in this town. So, you know, you're just making up as you go, right? Exactly. Exactly, Michael. <laughs> so to return to your, your, to your answer, it was very interesting, uh, the story that you want to bring to the world, uh, especially in light of the times uh, that we're living in right now. And so at this moment, we are seeing uh, a lot of protests, a lot of action, a lot of awareness around these issues. And I, since this is something that you are very much invested in, what are your thoughts about what's going on right now? Well, I'll tell you, it's, it's, I think it's kind of like been a powder keg of pent up frustration and people are just tired. And I think the situation from Minneapolis with uh, George Floyd was kind of like the combustion, combustion point for a lot of that frustration. And we can go back in American history and look at those points from the Watts riot to the, um, 
to the Rodney King situation in the 1990s. Um, you know, but this time is different. And this is what I, I'm, I'm just really absolutely delighted about is the diverse faces you see. Then to and be frank, in the past situations, it's been pretty much, um, you know, an African-American group of protesting. And, and certainly I'm on board that, but it's like to change the world, to change where we are at, it requires everyone to be joining in on this force. And that's what I see different. And in this perspective of my vision of what I want to do, it's about getting everyone, having everyone's voices, whether you're black, white, um, a male or a female, it doesn't matter. It's really about getting everyone's diverse voices into, into the conversation, particularly in the storytelling world. And, and, you know, think about since the dawn of man, it's always been telling stories, whether it be by a fire or whatever, and you, you sit around with your grandparents telling the story. So I'm a storyteller and just using the cinematic and stage arts to tell stories. And we, we need to have those diverse stories told because that's the world. We are diverse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it's, it's really powerful, the storytelling, especially right now, because you know, the, the protests, I, I think, have been phenomenal. It's great to see the solidarity. And you see a lot of parents actually bringing their children out. You know, exactly. To pro- no, really. Protest, help them understand. I thought it's actually a really interesting way to expose them and actually share some of these stories with them because I don't think we can transform as we need to without, you know, bringing the next generations on board. Well, and Neil, when you, when you said that is one of the, asked me the question, well, how did I get in this business? Well, not only did I have a love of storytelling and back and when I was in high school, it was super eight cameras and stop motion animation. I was part of the film club then. Um, but again, taking it forward to the digital world, but more importantly, when I looked around, my wife said, what are you going to do? And I said, I now want to be part of a solution, not just sitting on the sidelines. And part of this, the piece that I wanted to tell is I felt the cinematic arts were starting to be overwhelmed by CGI and comic book characters. And I said, that's wonderful. There's an audience. But I think at the end of the day, it's you can tell just a powerful stories that represent young, old, whatever, and it doesn't require tons of CGI. It, 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 we, we need to have a good story underneath that. And, and I want, instead of saying, we need it, I'm going to make it. So that's right. what I turned into. I'm making those stories. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that Martin Scorsese had a very interesting take on this last year. He upset a lot of people when he said that most movies right now, because of the uh, econ- economic incentives for big studios, have to be these CGI movies. They have to be these, what they call tentpole picture, tentpole. right? Yeah, the tentpole yeah. picture. But, you know, you lose the, you lose the ability to create pictures like Roma. Uh, which is smaller, but yeah. they're small stories, but they're really powerful. And we need those kind of stories right now. We need stuff that speak to what we're going through, the the, the human qualities, right? They're so important. But I want to go back to something you said a moment ago, because, you know, returning to what you said about Rodney King, uh, looking at the Watts riots, um, what do you think about now? Because you said that it was like a, a, it was like a combustion it's like a powder keg and then the combustion, right? So what about it, this particular moment, 2020, this, what is different, whether it be socially, politically, uh, I don't know, culturally, uh, yeah. that, that would, if you had a guess or, or, or theorize, why now, why are we finally seeing more people being swept up and, and really taking action, especially with the children and families? My, my opinion, not that I'm an expert, I think a couple elements. I think if we go back looking what happened in 2016, I think we look back the eight years prior to the 2016 election, 
many people felt maybe we had turned a page and, and maybe the page we turned was not the one we, that really happened. Mm-hmm. And what it almost did is uncork, I think the, what the difference is we have millennials that are now feeling empowered as just like you say, see the, the Bernie Sanders, the rise of the you know, large uh, progressive movements that particularly people below 45 years old, which, uh, you know, you might be in that space, Michael, but the perspective that there is a different generation. I think the young people of Amer- of the world, I'll say, not just America, are looking at things very different than the people above 45 and how they were raised, how they were uh, raised in a culture. And even though many of them probably had parents or grandparents that were probably on the far right, but they were raised through the 80s, 90s, and now the knots to have a different perspective of treating people. And they're basically allied themselves now with now a group that specifically felt disenfranchised, and that's the black, uh, black Americans. And to a certain degree, you, go, you think African-Americans represent, what, 13% of the population, but it's this group that has, has carried, that this nation has carried this original sin for over 400 years. And people just got, they used a trigger point, the, Rod, uh, the George Floyd, but underneath it was this, you saw the, there's excitement around Bernie Sanders, his very different views. I think the other spec, perspective is that aspect of, you know, it, the game is rigged. People feel the game's rigged. I can never get ahead in life. And a lot of millennials are struggling and have huge student debt. So I think those elements come into play that a lot of the younger, I say below 45, felt this weight of heavy college debt burden. Um, can't get it affordable, can't afford a house. All those things are com- combustion to this fire that we saw ignited by the George Floyd. And even though as we saw it as the initiative of folks on pro- police brutality, but it's you can see it's kind of getting broader. The all inequality, all, you know, it's it's again LGBTQ. The amazing ruling of the Supreme Court the other day. Yeah, just all that. And the young younger people are afraid, are prepared, and standing up to the challenge. They're not kowtowing to it. We, you know, think of it, we saw some of that in the in the sixties too. Mm-hmm. You forget. I, again, I love the love, love people, but hey, guys, there were people like you in the 60s. You know? yeah. <laughs> Sometimes people act like, I'm the first person to be leading the church. Well, you're just the ner- current generation. <laughs> so there, so I just see it as just a strong confidence in particularly young people. And I know there's other people, but I think it's powered by the youth of, of the world right now, this kind of momentum. Mm-hmm. Oh, they always say the young have the real power. And they're, they're saying, you guys, and they're, you guys are, you old people screwed up the thing, climate change, all that. I'm tired of waiting. You know, we need to get off the hydrocarbon based energy systems. We, all these things are affecting my ability. Am I going to live to be a grandparent? You know, and, and when we saw what happened in 2016 and, and this going, you got to be kidding me. How did that happen? Well, guess what youth, you didn't come out and vote and the vote does matter. And that's what, I'm on board a number of campaigns that you have to vote. Marching the streets, fantastic, but you've got to turn that into action. And the action all of us can take is voting. Mm-hmm. And, you, and unfortunately, a lot of young people don't vote as much as the people above age 45. And I think hopefully this, these, what happened 2016, what's happened recently, I, I, my hope and goal is that young people realize that voting does matter and you can take action with that vote. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's a powerful tool that I know it's, that it's, it's frustrating. And I think a lot of people think like, what difference is my, what really going to make? You'd be surprised. 
Yeah. <laughs> look, look, just look on the news every day. Look at who, how we're handling the coronavirus and people pretending like that's just a fake situation. Well, guys, it isn't. And it can come knocking at your door any day. So, you know, we saw it. The only country in the world where a public health matter turned into a political partisan issue. I mean, it's, it's just, it's kind of insane, actually. So, <laughs> You know, there's there's been a lot of discussion. We've actually had a few guests on that have been talking about, are we creating some of the problems ourselves? Or are we magnifying the problems to, are we turning an anthill into a mountain? And that mm. I get that bad news is good news for, <laughs> for the media. And, you know, people want the, the conflict, not necessarily the constructive kind. <laughs> and are we doing ourselves a disservice? I mean, if we're supposed to be you know, sharing stories and, you know, encouraging people, have we kind of lost our way with this then? Hmm. That's interesting. I'm one of the initiatives I mentioned before I'm on this no no COVID coalition, which includes former white house and several governors and a whole bunch, about 60 of us on it. And, um, you know, one of the things you're bringing up, Neil, was that the whole reason I got started by a group of activated citizens, no no one's funding it. They got on a phone call after James Carville made, made, wrote some uh, uh, op-ed piece in a, in, a, in a magazine or in a newspaper, and people got on the phone, eight people got on the phone, including James Carville, and said, hey, I think the issue is on, on the COVID thing, the message is not clear and consistent. It's not reaching all corners of America. And so a group of us had grown now to 60 people, including Lieutenant General retired Russell Honore from the Katrina uh, situation to, and it's left and right people. And it's beautiful. It's, it's a nonpartisan, but we have Republicans, Democrats, and everything between on it with a very clear mission of how do we engage every key county that is going to be seeing COVID. And we take that word. It's a data-driven conversation. Palantir is supplying the data analytics to kind of drill into what areas, what counties, and also what are the, what are those people in those counties? And we'll, you know, what we're finding is a lot of those people don't, you know, they, they don't look at the ABC, NBC, they, it just seems remote. What they do will listen to is someone they have a kinship to, whether it be a firefighter or, or a neighbor or relative, or even a, a country Western musician from that area. And that's what we did. We matched up a message with, key celebrity influencers to targeted areas. And that's reached a multiple millions of people outreach across America that feels genuine and authentic right. about where it stay home back in the, back in those old days when we had to stay at home. <laughs> well, what you're saying that is, is very interesting, but going back to the way that uh, this issue has been polarized or I'd say politicized. And I mean, if we return, we think about media, prior to, let's say, the 1990s, really the rise of 24-7 news coverage. Yeah. People had one, maybe two, three channels that they, they got for their news. They got a few newspapers, the, the selection there. But now we have all of these different sources, right? Different forms of storytelling, and yet the trust factor is way down with uh, the mainstream news. And so uh, David Brooks wrote a very interesting article before all this happened about if you really want to understand uh, the way that messaging is going, if you really want to understand politics, we understand identity politics, but in a different way. People go to personalities they trust. So whether, you know, it's Tucker Carlson or James Carville, whoever it is, um, Jimmy Dore on the left side, I'd say, people find that they can't trust an institution. They can't trust Fox, Fox News or MSNBC. Right. 
But instead, they trust that individual because they have a kinship with them. And I think that really speaks to the point that you're trying to make. Exactly. And, and, and Michael, as you said, we, the world of turning the evening news on at 630 across America is no longer the situation where people get their information. And now you can you, you go seek the news to the stuff that feeds your bias. <laughs> right, right. And if it feeds your bias, it reinforces it. And it just right. like, oh, yeah, that's what they're saying on Fox or that's what they're saying on CNN. And, right. and, and then on the internet, it, it just, we're going into these, all of us are, are rabbit holes and right. there's no kind of common perspective. And you go, well, how could someone even believe that? And then what you have someone, 16, 1600 Pennsylvania, saying it's fake, it's not real. So let's discredit it. And no matter how factual it is, or but I'm just telling you, it's, it's, it's not real. And then people are almost cult-like following this stuff. And just whether it be coronavirus or whatever, but it's almost that aspect of humanity. We seek things that reinforce our views versus I, let me seek things that are counter to my views. Right. It sounds right. like feeding your soul. Hey, just that feeding your soul. <laughs> but, I, but I have to, okay. So what you've been saying is really interesting because if you think about it, uh, we're talking about for, for a large period of this country's history, uh, minorities, especially black people were locked out of the mainstream conversation. You go back to Walter Cronkite. This was a white yeah. person. And you said, you know, uh, that we had bias. We definitely have bias right now. And we have confirmation bias. We want to watch our, whatever it is, it speaks to fills our soul. Right. Mm -hmm. But would you say that there was a different kind of bias going back to the 1960s and 1970s where the bias was just a different kind. It was spoke, it spoke mostly to middle-class white people or mm. upper middle-class white people. And mm. it, in itself, it had its own inherent bias and reach. I mean, even selling the Vietnam war oh, for more than yeah. a decade. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, that you're right. And, and as we saw the protest that erupted around that with the young people of, you know, yeah, you're right. It's like, did it speak to the plurality of Americans, the diversity of Americans? No, you're right. And and just like that perspective, the 1950s felt like the good times. You go, <laughs> right. The good times for what group of Americans? Yeah. Right. So I can reflect my father and mother were in the 50s in the South and <laughs> there weren't good times for that. So you're right. It kind of like that narrative, the American dream of what it, the 1950s felt good. For some Americans, like, right. you know, again, a, a certain demographic, which was the predominant, predominant demographic, but you're right that, and then people in the 60s started seeing, again, the youth, mm -hmm. truth to power, you know, speak truth to power in this, why are we in Vietnam, you know, mm -hmm. and then it, that turned into, oh, you're anti-American if you're not supporting it. And you go, it's kind of, then I go, it's like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. What do you mean? That is an American tradition, protest. Mm -hmm. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's co-opted this thing of, oh, American is about standing, standing by to one narrative. No, that's not really the history of this country. We broke away from England because we're protesting. <laughs> but it feels like we're turning it around because someone's just co-opting and just grabbing hold to one way you can prove yourself of being an American. I go, to me, whether it be the 60s protest in college campuses or Colin Kaepernick, that is the heart of what Americans are about. Mm -hmm. And it's not being disrespectful. It's actually being respectful to what American values are about. <laughs> yeah. So again, you're right, Michael, the, you know, we look back what was nice and vanilla and nice in the 60s and that the, the, the painting of the history books and how it looks so nice and wonderful 
And I said to my wife recently, I go, I don't even know. How do you teach history now? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even, because you think about it, history is like, from what perspective? Mm-hmm. And there's not, you know, 10 years that you can teach history in a class for, you know, 10 weeks <laughs> for the kids. Right. So what part of and what people's stories do you tell as the history to children? <laughs> yeah, Maybe they just don't have history class anymore. I don't know. I just kind of wonder. <laughs> I mean, I think you actually hit on even a more important part here or point here, which is, yeah, you know, we kind of gloss over, you know, we're not really looking at things with a diverse perspective, but we also live in the age of the soundbite, mm-hmm. right? That all these issues we're talking about are so complex. You can't sum it up in 10 seconds or less. Right. That's the age we live in, right? Everyone's looking for that soundbite moment. And that seems like that really actually is detrimental to good storytelling, right? Trying to actually help people. Well, and our attention, I, I know I did the internet change our attention spans? Like, you know, that's think about it. that's why Quibi got launched. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, now we're gonna we have to you know the question like in my world is well, why is a movie 90 minutes or two hours? Ask Martin Scorsese, you go, why is it three hours? But, and you go, are people's attention span less now, Neil? My, I, I don't know. You know, that like now a company, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, started yeah. a company to make, you know, the attention span is what, 10 minutes on a mobile phone or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you're right, Neil. I think that our attention spans have changed. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when it comes to, to my classes, I've noticed, I teach uh, screenwriting at Chapman. And oh. What I've noticed, and I, what I've noticed is that uh, some, most of my, my uh, students, they, they haven't watched the movies, uh, the two and the three hour movies that, that I watch because I, I went to film school there. Uh-huh. And, and I think that people are moving to a different form of content. I think the internet very much has changed our minds. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. I think that there is definitely a place and a need. Uh, there's actually a book called Thinking Fast and Slow about mm. this idea. And, mm. you know, really spending the time to, and if it doesn't have to be a movie, it could be a book. Uh, turn off your phone, put it on airplane mode, whatever, and then spend two or three hours with some content, a magazine, a, a book, book, a movie, yeah. because I think it really does change your brain because if you are in this reactive mode, in the soundbite mode, as Neil, Neil mentioned a moment ago, then you are not really getting into the issues. You're not looking at the historical context. You're not looking at the fact that, like you mentioned, we've been here before in some ways with Rodney King, with the Watts riots. Um, we've been here with Waco when it comes to Seattle. Yeah. Being aware of the wider context is very, very important. Well, and then it feeds to that really hor- the other side of you think everything can be solved in a, in a soundbite and, and yeah. everything has to be simple. And you know, the world, most stuff is not simply solved. It, it's not a tweet. A tweet doesn't solve it. You know, it, right. and that expectation and, you know, impatience of why can't this be solved by the end of the week? You know, these are like you said, 400, 800 year old issues or actually many you think about it, it, when I see the, even the signs of racism, I go, do you realize it's the dawn of man? There's, you know, it's not going to be an act of Congress. And, and unfortunately, racism belongs in someone's heart and mind. There's not a lot, you know, you can't legislate how people feel in their heart and their mind. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you certainly can address the police brutality side. But to go, we want to eliminate race. I don't, you know, that's, there's no congressional legislation that's going to do that. So... Yeah. You know, what I'm saying is there that aspect of short attention span, also simple. I can get everything should be solved very simply, but it doesn't help when you have the leader of suppose the free world acting like, yeah, that's kind of the way you solve stuff. Things simple with one conversation's done. 
And, uh, you know, it just, but again, that plays the back the news. I, I, my bias of that's what I, and I'm tired of the old politicians telling me it takes a long time. And that's a bunch of BS. And, you know, they're, they're someone, an outsider, a game changer can come in and, and just straighten things out. And you see how, where that took us. So <laughs> how, how, can we get back to good storytelling then <laughs> yeah so you know that piece of the storytelling and the beauty of linking the when i began the conversation about diversity is diversity can yield all these unique new stories and mm -hmm. the perspective of when we think of one of the films i was recently involved with the this changes everything with gina davis about the misrepresentation of women in hollywood um, and when you think of 11, 12% of the directors are women, how many people are women? 50% of the planet. So why is that? Because people, you know, we do it. We, when we hire people, we, and in a high stress, big dollar thing, what's the first thing, you know, let me figure out a way how to add new risk and dimension by hiring people that I'm not familiar with working with. So guess what? You hire the people you used to working with. Yeah. So we're trying to break that chain by now, as we heard the academies talking about some things to add additional criteria in the movies to push this diversity agenda. Mm -hmm. So the storytelling, and you, you can see things like Moonlight that come along. Mm -hmm. Beautiful storytelling from a whole, you know, a, 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 a gay African-American. It's it just all these kind of perspectives that are new and different that create compelling. Um, Medea is not going to win an Academy Award, but the bias that was against South Central, well, no one in the African-American community is going to go to movies or uh, go to Starbucks. Well, you know, people, uh, uh, Mervyn Magic Johnson says, that's BS. I'm going to invest in that community. And guess what? African-Americans are some of the most dedicated moviegoers. So Hollywood's bias overlooked huge economic opportunity. Yeah. And now, you know, Tyler Perry and his Medea franchise, you know, making zillions of dollars. And before like oh no one why would someone make those movies no one's gonna well guess what that's not true so back to the storytelling it's telling these diverse stories that really has some economic power and as you know gentlemen in the day when i, when I always say someone asks me i'm a film i'm a hollywood filmmaker that's meaning my goal and objective is to make it a commercially viable enterprise right <laughs> unlike in europe which are heavily government subsidized movies it can just be a pure art form Sure. In Hollywood, American filmmaking is about making it a commercially viable film <laughs> enterprise. So you hit the economics, follow the money. And basically, I'm out there trying to show them that these diverse films do make money and it's worth investing. So diversity is the right economic decision. That's right. <laughs> I, I agree with you. And the, I don't know if you got to see Dolomite uh, with Eddie Murphy. Which, exactly. was, which was excellent, by the way. I mean, that yeah. was his whole point. People do want to go see those movies. They, they uh, don't want to have movies shoved down their throat and say, this is what you got to watch. They, yeah. And he went out and did it on his own. And it and is on own. Yeah. And, and to return to something earlier, you know, I think if, if you were uh, an alien coming from space, I'm looking at your background here, which, by the way, I think is beautiful. Uh, Ivan, if you come from space and you see all these people arguing about all these different issues, I actually think at the end of the day, of course, if it goes to violence, that's not a good thing. But the right. fact in America that we it's the first time we've ever really had this experiment where we have a plurality of voices and we don't always agree. But I think that's actually a good thing because um, you have you have all these these different opinions and we might think that we're right but if we have a chance to be quiet for just a moment and listen to somebody else and really come to some sort of agreement because of all these different voices that we're hearing here i think that that's that's a good thing in society even though right now it might not seem that way 
It, no, you're exactly, I think the output side of it's going to be a better world. You're right. Getting and people showing that, yes, it's, it's and basic. The other thing, silence is no longer kind of accepted before it was like, oh, just being silenced, the neutral. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's an expectation. You do have to stand up for what's right. And yeah. if it's, if you're not standing up, then people are now interpreting, you're not standing You're you're not on what's right. So um, yeah, I agree, Michael, that it's these voices are now the young, and I applaud the young people. They're, they're challenging the status quo. And it's for old guys like me to pay attention and, you know, make sure that these messages and these things are coming up, even though, you know, Bernie Sanders wasn't the nominee. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Joe Biden, his team are looking at how, how come he didn't get much support from the other th- under 30. Right. Because those under 30 people are the future. Mm-hmm. So we gotta, we've got to incorporate that view uh, into the space. And I certainly think the Republican Party is going to have to figure out a way to, you know, reach a demographic. And right now that seems like it's quickly diminishing the base they're going after. So um, anyway, the wor- world's changing. I want to be part of it and, and be a storyteller to help, my, you know, incentivize people to get invested in those do- new and different stories and tell stories like the Lily Project about the Lily Ledbetter story that I'm involved with, getting the story about Lily Ledbetter, the woman who was discriminated, a white female in Alabama who found out when she retired that three of the, her colleagues of the same pay grade managers were paid twice as much as she was. And then turned into the Lily Ledbetter Act, Fair Pay Act, and President Obama's first major piece. We're telling that, bringing that story to screen so people can see yeah. understand the story of what do you probably fair pay, equal pay? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is what it meant. And this is, this stuff did happen and it does happen yeah. and we need to eliminate it. So it's not going to be tolerable and make it. So we as storytellers get to be helping the catalyst catalyze those conversations and more specific actions that need mm-hmm. to be taken. Hey, that, that's, that's awesome. And Ivan, thank you for sharing your story. And if you want to continue to follow your story, what's the best way to follow you, get in touch with you? Well, I mean, pretty much I got, uh, you go on IMDb, you got Ivan Williams, number seven. Unfortunately, there's six other Ivan Williams, IMDb is producers and whatever. Um, I have a Facebook site. It's my personal site, but I share, I, it's not I call personal, but it's mainly my business site. And um, yeah, and uh, I've got on my Twitter feed uh, at Ivan37 and uh you know, can check me out there, reach out and find out what I'm doing. And uh, I have a love of higher education, as Neil knows, and uh, making it happen, all sorts of fronts there. And thanks to Neil and Michael giving me this opportunity to amplify my, my voice. Yeah, very happy to. Pleasure. F- fantastic conversation. And we'll Thank make you. sure that those contact info is in the show notes, everybody. All right, man. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment. If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends. Thank you.